We are all very human and fallible, and yet we live in a society that rewards pretending we're not fallible, or the range of acceptable fallibility is narrow. We are constantly comparing our insides to other people's outsides and feeling inadequate and guilty, even ashamed. Trying to blend in means parts of ourselves must disappear, and we must then live in fear that we will be found out. Here, together, we will create a space where we can laugh, cry, and carry our suffering and hurts lightly. In the service of being deeply human. This is Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Hello, I'm Chris McCurry, and welcome to Life's Dirty Little Secrets. Hello, I'm Emma Waddington, and I'm delighted to introduce you to our guest today, Jonathan Shippey. Jonathan is a licensed marriage and family therapist in the U.S. He is a senior certified Gottman couples therapist and an advanced clinical trainer, and he has been personally trained by doctors John and Julie Gottman, which is amazing. I'm completely in awe of that. Obviously, they are rock stars to all of us who do couples therapy. And today, we are going to be talking about the idea of happily ever after. And so maybe, Jonathan, you can kick off with telling us, is there such a thing? Is there such a thing as happily ever after? Well, hi, Emma and Chris. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks for the opportunity. You know, my mission is really to help bring about peace in the world, and I love doing that at any level. So any peace and love we can bring in with this discussion today, that's good stuff. I feel like we're making a little difference. And uh, so, yeah, Gottman Institute, you know, their podcast is called Small Things Often, and, and it's always been in the mix of make a little adjustment in the moment we're in right now and watch what happens over time. So I would say this idea of small things often might be the key to happily ever after. And so maybe that's kind of a great place to sort of launch that discussion is rather than focusing on the big things occasionally, maybe we should focus on the small things often. And that's really what we find is the happy couples who are happily together over time they're, they just take care of the moment that they're in and with an eye to better moments in the future, always with Dan Weil is a, a therapist that John and Julie really admire. John's, they say that Dan just intuitively knew how to do couples therapy in a way that it took the Gottman Institute 40, 50 years to, of research to figure out. And this guy was just doing it. And he has a book called Solve the Moment. It's just a great a great concept that rather than focus on, again, I was actually working with a couple one time. They're like, I, she said, I know what we're doing wrong. We're focused on big things. Occasionally we're not focusing on all little things, the details that really would make a difference. So for example, I get a text and I'm busy or distracted or have other people. I want to, you know, well, my partner, you know, they'll be there. I'll get back to them. But hours might go by when I could have just sent a little little letter K, right? Or something that mm-hmm. says, noted, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Love you. That could go such a far way as opposed to no response at all. I was just thinking about this, these small things often and the happily ever after and how there is a contrast in a way that our understanding, I was talking to my husband, I often ask him, what do you think when I have a topic? I'm like, so what do you make about this happily ever after? 
And I think that the idea with versus small things after, the idea with happily ever after is like we get married and then you're just happy. That's it. Or, or you decide to be in a partnership and then you're just happy. I think this idea that you have to do small things often is new. Or at least my, my experience of, of relationships is that there wasn't a conversation about actually relationships are tough and you need to work at it. That that feels like something that I've had to learn by becoming a couples therapist, actually, myself. Yeah. There is this, yeah, this idea, and I don't entirely know where it comes from, if it's come from, you know, Disney or at some point in history, we changed from marriages being convenient you know, kings and queens, and I want to marry you because you have a bigger farm, and two, we marry for love. And that's fairly recent. Uh, I think Queen Victoria was one of the first, you know, or the only queen that married for love. And with that, there's an expectation that things should just work out, I believe. And that's the happily ever after, is that somehow it just happens. You find a person you love, and then it all goes okay. And there's no conversation as to actually those small things often we need to keep doing. Yeah, there's a fantastic book that your listeners might want to know about. Marriage and family therapists, at least, will know the name Irvin Yalom. He's kind mm. of the, the, the father of group therapy and really yeah. kind of wrote the primer on group therapy that a lot of us in grad school, or even, I think, all kinds of mental health professionals. But um, his wife, Marilyn, has a really cool book that came out about 20 years ago called A History of the Wife. How how did marriage considered a religious duty in medieval Europe become a venue for personal fulfillment in contemporary Western society? Wow, I've never heard of it. History of the Wife, Marilyn Yalom. And I think Stephanie Coons has a book about this concept too, like how our attitudes in history changed. I just Mm -hmm. can't remember Stephanie Coons' title, but I think the Marilyn Yalom book is a great read. It's just about that. And, um, you know, there's so many little quotes that John and Julie have tossed out through the years. And I'll, I think of those when I was thinking of those as this topic, this idea that. So John says, mostly in love, all you can do is repair when you get screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> constant uh, is constant tension between living your best life and then repairing the moment that went that got away from you or coming back together, sort of colliding, uh, you know, a little bit of distance created. The loving couples find a way to come back together, to slow down and what we call the repair. This, this, oops, I'm sorry, I did it again. Let me try and repair. And the partner says, I know you're trying. Of course, Mm -hmm. I'll let you repair that. Mm -hmm. Pour me a hot bath and see what happens. You know, like do Mm -hmm. do something Mm -hmm. nice for me to make up for the the thing you you left me hanging on. And then I think also this idea that there's a, my, one, probably one of my favorite Gottman quotes is this line. He says that the, so they had this study and it was in the Bay area and for people to get into the study, the partners independent of each other had to pass a screening test that verified, okay, they're happily, they feel themselves happily partnered and they had to experience that they were in a happy, stable partnership for at least 20 years. So it was a a study of really, you know, long-term happy love. And and so some of the people in the study had been together 60 years and they were, they've been together happily. They were in their eighties. 
And the that so John and his team said, okay, we've concluded the tagline for lasting happy love, you know, happily ever after, you might say. And here's what it is. Baby, I love you exactly as you are. And for God's sake, would you please change? <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, that, that, that reminds me of a, something that a parent said to their child, which is, I love you just the way that you are, but I love you too much to let you stay that way. <laughs> yeah, I like that one too. It's it's the tension of I really need to lean into you are wonderful and I love you and not every little thing about you do I find absolutely adorable. I'd love for you to take a look at where you leave your shoes all over the house or whatever the thing is and then find a loving way to draw your partner's attention to that and wrapping it up in this kind of abundant Almost like a love sandwich. Like, I love you exactly yeah. as you are. I need you to make an adjustment. And remember, I love you exactly as you are. And a lot of, a lot of very literal people cannot understand the paradox of that. They're like, wait, if I love you exactly as you are, I must accept everything about you. And what we find is organically in the real world doesn't work that way. It, it yeah. begins and ends with you're wonderful. And, you know, your breath stinks. Could you go brush your teeth, please? I mean, it's like little things like that, that yeah. you find a way to say, please adjust. And I guess it's really interesting because I think this idea that, you know, happily ever after, that things are going to be okay, doesn't open us to the possibility that we might need to ask for things to change. Like if we, that, that tension that you're speaking about, that, you know, you can love someone and not like something that they're doing and ask them to change what they're doing. When we're, we're living in, in a society or we've been brought up in a way that doesn't sort of teach us to work at the relationship, that it kind of creates this, this tension that if I'm unhappy about something, it must be that it's bad, that this relationship is not a good one. It's like this sort of you know fairy tale, everything needs to be perfect. If it's not, then it's the end. Or, or even the idea that if I have to work at it, there's something wrong. Exactly. Exactly. That this, that this should be smooth sailing. And I mean, that's sort of the Carol Dweck mindset thing of, you know, that it's it has to be good and immutable from the beginning. And if, if trouble happens, then I'm out of here. As that's opposed right. to, you know, okay, you know, let's talk, let's work through this, let's do what we can. It's so interesting, I, and I, I ponder this endlessly, why people understand intuitively they've got to go in for dental checkups about every six months. We know we have to change the oil in our cars. We know that we have to get our houses clean some way or another, that things that we use a lot, we have to maintain and clean and, and, you know, attend to. When I was in the army, it used to be preventive maintenance. You just can't, <laughs> nothing runs as a perpetual motion machine. I mean, all this is known. And then it's like, we said, I do, and it was great. And we had this wonderful honeymoon and it'll never take any work or maintenance. And, and there's almost no part of our life that requires no maintenance. If you're in a profession, you've got to get continuing education. I mean, it's just known that it's not, nothing in life is really, truly fix and forget. But I find people just really don't understand that that 
It takes a little bit. It does not take. People say relationships take work. Oh, I know they take a lot of work. And I always cringe. I'm like, mm-hmm. tell me something takes work. And I, the first thought is, when do I get my nap or break time? You know, like, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I don't want to work hard. I want it to be yeah. easy. So it's, I don't think it takes work, but I do think it takes focus. I also think, and John really introduced this idea, in, to my knowledge, in the first, the first time I saw it in print, was an idea that, that lasting love has a life cycle. And we all know this. We know about young children. There's an early childhood development. They become an older child, and they can do a few more things. The adolescence is another development stage. Early adulthood, you know, we know that there's a life cycle to, to our lives. Well, John identified that love has a life cycle. And this falling in love stage in this in his book, What Makes Love Last, he references a University of Hawaii professor whose name I'm just not recalling right now. But she had a, tor- a term she called limerence. Mm-hmm. And limerence is this infatuation. You can't wait to get that next text. You just can't wait to see your lover. You, you know, the, usually there's a lot of hot sex and things are just great and everything's so cool and it's really, really fun and exciting. Almost, almost too exciting, almost too distracting. I have a friend that says, I can't wait for that phase to be over so we can, we can settle in. It's just almost too much. And I know what she's talking about, but there is a, there's a duration of that limerence phase that can last on its own. And that's an important note that on its own, without anything else developing, Couples can sustain that for up to about two years. But if they don't ever achieve the next phase, which is establishing trust, that love, it'll just die on the vine. Or it's these couples that are in that phase, they commit, and then things get frosty. And I I get a lot of these couples at about the 15, 20-year mark. And they'll usually say things like, it was so amazing and so easy. And then this one thing happened and we've never really recovered. I hear like whatever the thing is. And I find, well, what happened was because really your, your early love never really got tested. And, and the way we, by the way, we, the way we develop trust, this, this second developmental phase the way we develop trust is actually through conflict. Mm -hmm. If we don't understand the value of conflict, which is really deepening our knowledge of each other, this is really how we actually get known. Hey, you may not, you know, you must not know about me as Beyonce saying so many years ago, you know, but you Mm -hmm. need to know about me. And that's where conflict's going to come in because Oh, I thought you knew and you're not acting in accordance with what I thought you knew or uh, how in the world did you think that was going to go over well with me, whatever it is. And then we have conflict. The problem is a lot of us don't know how to navigate that conflict and the conflict itself. First of all, everything was fine for, you know, all those months, if not years, and now it's not fine. And it's very alarming for people. They're like, oh, my God, I thought we were good, and now we're fighting all the time. And in our work, we're not really so upset about people fighting. It's just that they don't know how to fight like they love each other. And they 
they get into some really nasty habits and loving, happy couples learn how to do that. And, and that's actually one of the gifts of the Gottman research is we studied really happy people like this, the study I was talking about in the Bay area. Why not learn from people that are doing it well and then figure out what are their patterns that the rest of us might want to copy. But I find that key to lasting love is truly in, can we navigate conflict in a way that deepens our knowledge of each other? In Gottman parlance, we say love mapping. How deeply do you know me and how currently do you know me? Mm -hmm. Conflict is a huge way that we develop that knowledge. And then we act on it. And yeah. that actually, the, the, the working through the, okay, I've made an adjustment because you need me to make an adjustment and you think I'm wonderful, which makes me want to adjust even more. Tell me that you love me and I'm okay. And I'll go, what do you want me to change? Tell me that yes. you think you've, I've got to change before you love me. I'll dig my heels in and say, I'm not changing. You change. It's so counterintuitive. That's when commitment, that's when commitment really solidifies and that's lasting love. I am forever committed to this person. That's happily ever after. And that's the third phase of lasting yeah. love. Yeah. Because the conflict piece, it's so interesting reading, you know, the Gottman talk about, you know, there is conflict in both, you know, the, the happy couples and the unhappy couples. Really? There is. There, so conflict is part of our journey in a relationship. So that doesn't distinguish the happy and the unhappy. But the expectation is that conflict is bad. And I remember reading about, you know, the, the definition of conflict doesn't talk about the intensity of the emotion. No. Conflict is a disagreement. But there is a fear of conflict. Like like oh. what Chris here is saying, you know, it's a bad sign. It's like that means that this is not good. We shouldn't have conflict. And yeah, in we all really, we really need yeah, to get rid of that. Belief. We need to get rid of that. So true. <laughs> Even in families. I remember Kelly Wilson, you know, one of the founders of Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which is the, the model um, Chris and I use, said to me, you know, I pity the children who have perfect parents. And I thought, wow. Initially, I was like, oh, really? And then I thought, oh, no, it's true, because you don't get the modeling of how to manage conflict and how conflict is important and how much information you can get out of conflict, because you know, if you're going to have this perfect relationship, and in fact, there is data on that too, isn't there? That relationships that have no conflict are not doing well. That if there's no well, conversation and no change in affect. No, it's really interesting that it's, I don't think it's so much no conflict, it's avoiding conflict. Yes, that's right. It's avoiding oh. conflict. And I yeah. grew up in, I'm, you can pity me because I grew up in one of those homes where my oh, father my father and mother got along. I don't know. Do you know these cartoon characters, Chip and Dale? And they'll they'll okay. like stand, they'll stand at a door and say, "You go through." No, you go through, and they they can't get anything done because they're so cordial and you know polite to each other. And it, that's right. the joke, right? Well, my mom and dad were like Chip and Dale. They they literally would stand at the door. No, honey, I think you should go first. You know, no, you take the last donut. No, you take the last donut. I mean, they, they, if they ever had a disagreement, it was all in deference to each other. And you need to know when I first encountered like real, like my first falling in love phase and there was conflict, 
I was undone. I did not know what what is going on. Like I thought you find the one and then you're happily ever after. And That's right. boy did it rock my world that it and that has not been my journey of adult love. It has not been easy. It has not been conflict-free. And it took me a while to learn that that's okay. But I did not learn healthy conflict. And I don't really think it was that they avoided it. It's just they literally got along that well. They were so compatible. And mm. on some levels, they just adored each other. I mean, my mother was still in love with my father and she, and he passed away 13 years before she passed away, but she never stopped. I mean, daily pining. She pined for that man for every day of her life after he was gone. And they were together happily for almost 50 years. And he passed away just before their, their 50th. But, um, you know, it was quite a shock of like, Oh, what like conflict and, I, and it's funny i remember watching a video with john and some of our trainings and there was this couple that was engaged in such civil conflict that several therapists in the room said uh, dr gottman could you show that video just one more time because i am not seeing the conflict and he would he would sort of break it down for us and our, it's this wow. really really wonderful couple and something came up and he did this kind of what we would call a repair attempt. And he deflects and he says something like, oh, I just love your shoes. I think that's such a cool thing. I'm glad you bought those. It had nothing to do with what they were trying to work out. But it was, she goes, oh, it's nothing. Really? <laughs> and then it was like this really cool little connection point. And then he said, but really, honey, we've got to work on that spending. You're like, it's a lot of spending going on. But he's like complimenting her on a purchase while also saying, can we kind of rein the spending in a little bit? And it, it was so subtle and lovely the way they navigated this. She's like, I know, I really need to rein it in and I'll work on it. And the next thing you know, they're happily walking off. But it was all about hey, you're spending too much. Can you cut back a little bit? But the way they did it was so sweet. Neither one of them felt criticized or attacked. They felt honored and cherished, even in the middle of a disagreement. And I just think that's available to a lot of us, but we don't understand some subtle ways to get there. Yeah, that is so cool. It's so cool. I love that phrase, they don't know how to fight like they love each other which is so true. We don't learn that unless we've witnessed it. Yeah. You know, how to fight like you love each other is doing it kindly. And even when there is intense emotion, I mean, the emotion per se isn't a problem. It's the lack of repair and actually learning something out of the exchange. And I think a lot of the time when we think of conflict, we think about being right. Mm -hmm. You know, who's going to win this war? Yeah, I'm, you know, as opposed to how are we going to understand each other better after this conversation? How is this conversation going to help us navigate better our relationship? That isn't the priority in conflict often for people. And you, you know, Emma, what I think you're alluding to with that is the idea of, of um, it's funny, I just have stumbled on this idea recently about why do some of my couples come to therapy and it's hard work, but we re they really get what they came for. And, and over time, I feel like they've I'm ready. A good couples therapist will tell you, 
But what we want is to equip that couple to have their best life. They don't want, I don't want them dependent on me. I want them to, yeah. So a Gottman couples therapist is going to create what we call change moments. We're going to get them interacting together. It's not all channeled through the therapist where I'm sort of the tent, the center pole of the tent in the circus, you know, and then if you pull the center pole out, the whole circus falls apart. Like, I don't want to be that. I want to be a guide on the side for their work. But I've been wondering, okay, that's all my, always my stance. I'm always trying to be the guide on the side, equipping them, stepping in, stepping back. And then there's a day where we just realize they're ready to launch. They don't need me anymore. They, they, you know, I, I speak less and less. I intervene less and less. The latter parts of therapy, I'm like, someone's like, why am I getting paid for this? Because I'm really just sort of witnessing them dance together. And that's also when it's like, look, I cannot in good conscience have you come back and pay me money because you've got this. You just don't need me. And and then I think yet these other couples, they they it falls they fire me or they just fuck with they quit coming. I mean, really early on, it's hardly even begun before it's over. And often I think, what is the difference? Mm-hmm. And I think I've come to realize I think the difference is some people believe that adversity is a chance to learn and grow better and grow stronger. And some people are so hampered by what I think is inner shame. I have mm-hmm. to get it right. I have to get it perfectly. And if I'm struggling or if my partner's struggling, that indicates a problem mm-hmm. rather than my partner struggling or if I'm struggling, this is my chance to learn. So let me adjust and learn. And I think if people don't have a mindset of the learner and I don't help them at least take a look at that, hey, I, I need you to be open to learning here because learning is what's going to help you grow. And I think some people just don't have that mindset. They want it to be perfect and they want it to be right and they want it to be happy and all problems tucked away and tidied up and now we're good. And we're good forever. And if we're not good forever, then that still indicates we're no better off. It's a terrible mindset. Mm. It's kind of, it needs to be pain-free, right? If you think it needs to be pain-free as, and that's the marker of whether it's going well, well, you I, you got another thing coming because it's not going to be pain-free. I'm a lifelong violinist. This year it marks my 50th year since I started learning the instrument. Violins, like guitars and other string instruments, and string players will tell you this, they know this, there's got to be enough tension on that string or you're not going to be able to make make beautiful music. If the strings are not tightened in such a way, they're just loosey-goosey kind of flapping around on the instrument, there's no way it's going to make any music. But if you wind it too tight, it's going to pop and you can't make beautiful music there either. But there is this tension of a just right amount of pressure and there's a space where there's just a just right amount of tension that will produce a beautiful tone. And the technique and all that's involved too, but as a basic, and I think that tension has to be present to make us alive, to make us vibrant, to help us work through the challenges. If it gets a little too tight, hey, Mm -hmm. partner, up a little bit this is too much mm-hmm. but there has to be some challenges or we don't grow yeah that's really interesting so that individual that kind of perspective or idea of 
how relationships when they come when couples come into therapy but i imagine that's also outside of therapy this idea that there is going to be tension and we can learn from tension and we need to be open to learning and to trying new things and in a way to um, be have that attitude of curiosity um, when it comes to our relationship, like asking the question. One of the things that I learned from the Gottmans, which really stayed with me, is this attitude of curiosity when somebody is upset with you versus this defensive you know, somebody goes, you know, why did you do this? Um, you go, oh, you're upset with that. How we understand what's upset you versus what? How dare you speak to me like that? And that's a big shift because, but it's not the, the, the place from which you need to come from is that place of not taking it so personally. And I think wow. that's, you know, what do you allude to with that shame, right? that it becomes very personal very quickly for some people. And that makes it very hard. And we need to work on that part. And maybe, yeah, why, why do some of us feel so much shame when there is conflict in couples? Why is it so much harder for some of us versus others? Again, I think some of us, like, we've been either taught some unfortunate lessons about love. Some of us are a little too... I over-identified with our partner's happiness. Mm, a lot of true. guys, especially, have been taught it's your job to keep your your female partner or your male partner. It's your job as a man to keep your partner happy, mm. which is really not nearly as, as profound as being present when your partner is in pain. Being present when your partner is in pain is a much more bonding experience than working your ass off to try to keep your partner happy at all times. Yeah. And it's yeah. exhausting. I, I had a couple, I remember this, it just was so startling a bit when the guy said, she said something like his wife said in session, well, I'm not happy about something. And he said, well, immediately didn't skip a beat. Well, what do you think that says about me? If you're not happy, how do you think that reflects on me as a husband? Oh. And I just said, could I stop uh, the, the process for a minute? Because that's a really challenging belief. I don't believe it is your job to keep your wife dressed in her happy jacket at all times. I really think a better goal is when she's in sadness, she's not left alone in it. You may not be able. I, I, I really love Brene Brown's book, The Atlas of the Heart, and her, her mm. special on HBO. I think everyone who's in a relationship would benefit from watching it. And she uses this idea of our feelings are really just map locators. They're GPS coordinates. And all they are is if I can language my feelings and if you'll listen, come to me when i'm in sadness come to me don't make me come to you don't make me get over to the happy zone i have a feeling wheel you guys have probably used one too it's from the one i love is from a group called nonviolent communication but i love this feeling wheel and i, I tell my couples think of it as a map of the world it's where in the world is my partner and we actually do a silly little exercise in my office when they're in office. And I have one of them hold this map of the feelings. And it has probably, I don't know, 60 different words for where I might be. And it's divided into zones, like colorful zones, um, like a map. 
And I say, pick a random feeling and just name it. And so a partner will ask, put your finger down on it like you're playing a board game. Like just Mm -hmm. land there, right? And so one will say, okay, here I am in sadness. And I'll say, would you turn to your partner and just say these words with your finger there? I'm feeling sad. And I'll have the attending partner, the listening partner. I'll say, now, would you put your finger down? Make sure they can touch. Make sure you feel your partner right next to you. And say these words. I understand you're in sadness. And I will not leave you alone in your pain. Mm. And I've had people cry. It's a silly little exercise. But I, I've had people literally brings them to tears to hear their partners say, I will not leave you alone in your pain. But we do when we say, well, how do you think that reflects on me when you're sad? Or when we say, don't be sad. Have you thought about talking to Sister Mary Alice? Or have you thought about, can I offer you a sandwich? Or try these things. You should probably say this to your boss and then you'll feel better. So I jump to solutions and problem solving. When really what my partner needs is for me to zip it and just say, I'm here with you and I won't leave you alone in it. Well, that, that's, that's why I like that little video. It's not about the nail. You like that, do you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny, Chris. We used that in a couple's workshop last weekend. My co-presenter, who's a woman, we were watching, we used that as, as a fun little light moment about that we were teaching, using it as a teaching illustration. Almost like we told you this, but here's a funny way. Don't do this, but watch this. And um, anyway, she when it was done, she said, did you look around the room as the video was playing? I was like, no, because I just love that video and I think it's really funny. And she said, watch the women in the room when that video is playing next time. And she goes, not one woman was laughing. And every man thought it was funny. Ouch. And I thought, oh. And I said, because dudes want to go, but you, you know, you do have. Do you have a nail? (laughs) That's that's right. The truth, there's truth in humor, and the truth is, and yet, even the nail, and we don't know how that nail got stuck there. (laughs) The first thing she wants is, do you care about the pain I'm in? Yeah. Let's let's leave alone what I need to do with the nail first. The first thing is, am I going to get stuck here hurting with my migraines and my snag sweaters? <laughs> or are you yeah. going to be with me in it? And then just, and it's so interesting because there's this little moment where he actually practices, okay, I'll listen, you know, like, yes, it's really awful. It's so painful. And she goes, ah, you're really getting me. And she feels good. And then all of a sudden, they, their heads bump into each other. And he goes, well, there's it. And she goes, don't even. <laughs> and so it's like even still, it's the it's the trying to find that solution before she really felt kind of wrapped up in his presence. Well, before she felt heard. Before she felt heard and understood and not left alone. Then I'm open to whatever you have to suggest. Well, a friend of mine in graduate school used to say, all behavior is a message, and a behavior won't begin to change until the person knows the message has been received. 
And I mean, so much of this sounds like, you know, my work with parents and helping them them in their relationship with their kids in terms of validating the child's, you know, emotions and ideas before you jump in and start trying to solve the problem, their broken shoelace or whatever it may be. And it's hard. It's hard because one of the things I've often talked about is is a definition of tolerance, Mm -hmm. which is not, you know, like gritting your teeth and getting through a situation, but it's more like an engineering tolerance of the optimal distance between two moving parts. And, you know, when do we lean in in the relationship, either, you know, emotionally or physically, and when do we hang Mm -hmm. back a little bit? Mm -hmm. And what often drives our leaning in and hanging back is how we feel in the moment as opposed Mm -hmm. to what the situation actually calls for. Yeah, And so, so uh, you know, I, I lean in to try to solve the problem when I really need to hang back and listen or I hang back when I really need to lean in. And yeah. so it's the ability to hold that stuff, whether it's shame or for me, it's anxiety. Conflict makes me highly anxious. Mm-hmm. And to be able to hold that lightly and, you know, lean in or hang back as the situation calls for. I, I wanted to, before we jump off the, the nail conversation, I showed it to mm-hmm. my husband that video. Because when I was doing my DBT training, they introduced me, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I love this. I love this. And years later, just after having my second, and we were in a bumpy period, we just moved to Singapore. Our second was six weeks old, eight weeks old. I mean, it was, you know, madness. Chris knows all about it because he held my hand very kindly through it. And I remember I I showed him the nail video, and he goes, okay but I want you to know I would never validate you in that situation. When something is so obvious, like a nail in your forehead, you cannot expect me to sit there and say, that sounds painful. I will want to pull that nail out of your head. Yeah, I get it. I get the instinct. I really do. Yeah. I I think, especially men, it seems like we don't understand the value. We we almost like, underestimate i I love you you, i'm sure you guys also while we're talking about videos that get a lot of attention surely you must have seen this video from Brene brown about the difference between empathy and sympathy and it has a little three characters a little bear a little fox and a goat and the the fox in particular is having a rough day and the goat stands at the surface. I love the animation. The goat is at the surface and tossing down platitudes and saying things like, well, should I make you a sandwich? And I always like to point out the goat is coming from good intentions, but it is disconnected. It is not in the little foxhole. Whereas the bear in, the, in this animation doesn't have very many lines. It just climbs down this rope ladder that it throws down and it sits with the fox down in the hole in the darkness. And at the end of the video, she has this voiceover and she says, really, there's not much I can say when you're having a bad moment that's going to make it better. What makes it better is connection. And it's very akin to this idea of until I'm present with you, we really don't need to figure out the solution." So I know it's funny and everybody goes, I would never validate, but I would propose to your husband, he could validate however this happened, it hurts. I can totally validate that it hurts. And I propose to you that telling you that I see that you're hurting 
it has a world of value which calms you not judging me for hurting not saying you know why'd you do that How, you know, what is there a lesson you can learn from this you know like <laughs> guns or whatever right so, <laughs> yes very true not helpful what's helpful is tell me that you feel a little sense of sympathy for my pain and that you care about me and now honey can you take me to the er so we can get the nail extracted <laughs> yes it's not a great way to live but yeah. the first thing i need is oh my gosh i've got a nail in my head and it hurts and i'm all alone in it as yes. opposed to oh my gosh i've got a nail in my head and it hurts but i've got one person in all the world that's holding me and saying i'm with you we're going to get through this together yeah. it's a very very different experience right that's right. I mean, huge. I mean, this is an ongoing conversation between, you know, my, this second child of mine is now 10. And, and it just leads me to think about, do you think some people just are, I don't know, really struggle with validation? Because I see that in the clinic room. They just don't get mm -hmm. that that validation piece is so, so key. Because often I'll hear people say that they don't, need it themselves mm -hmm. whether it's true or not i don't know right i don't totally believe that but there is this resistance like well i don't really need it so i don't really get it i get it in some situations but if i don't think it's that bad like the nail in the head situation mm -hmm. you know i just pull the nail out and the problem solved or if you know we often see this with parents and children especially adolescents you know it's not really that big a deal you know just get over yourself yeah, and adults will really struggle with not being able to take the perspective of the other person or somehow think you're reinforcing bad behavior. Oh, people are terrified. Oh my gosh. I remember a family that I'm friends with. I was sitting at their table having a meal and their daughter, who was in high school at the time, was struggling with, with truancy. She just didn't want to go to school. And it was a real struggle. And and I get it. It's it's really very difficult for parents when they're dealing with that. But we were at the table and I remember I, I asked what I did not know was a taboo question. I learned very quickly because I actually got kicked under the table. But I said, I said to the young lady, I said, well, what is it that you're worried about? You know, can you name what it is that you're afraid of or worried about? And the kick under the table was because I had invited emotions into the room. And it was just... Oh, is, I guess that's against the family rules, I thought to myself. But she, she, it was really interesting what happened next because she said what she was worried about because someone actually asked. And I, I'm sorry that I'm coming across as the hero in this story because I, I could tell you a lot of stories where I'm the goat, okay? Like, and not in a good way. Like, I'm like, oop, I did that out loud in public and people heard me. <laughs> so that would, normally I can go there too. But this time I really did the right thing, if you will. And my buddy later on, her dad, who's a good friend of mine, he said, that was kind of amazing. And I said, what? And he goes, my daughter told you more about her school situation in that dinner than she's told me in a year. And I said, mm -hmm. Brother, I just want you to hear that the thing, the thing that I did was just simply gave her a chance to, to express her feelings. Wow. And so many of us have not understood the difference. I, I talk about, I have, I have a daughter, she's a young woman now, but when she was little, 
we had to comb her hair very carefully or we had to detangle it. If we couldn't just run a comb through there rapidly, it would cause a lot of pain. And you've got to kind of go slow to detangle and get things sort of detangled. But a lot of us don't understand the distinct interconnected, but distinctness of my feelings in my heart or my body, my thoughts in my head, my perspective and what I need and what Mm. actions. And I think about these three learning channels or three expression channels, my feelings, my thoughts, and my actions. And I spend a lot of energy with my couples helping them detangle. So a lot of people will say something like, you know, I feel like you're a jerk. I'm just telling you how I feel. And I want to say, hang on, that's really not a feeling, even though you use the word feeling. That's actually a thought. And and our, our listeners can't hear me, but at some point I'll usually work in this little three finger exercise. And I'll say, you really need all three. One, what are you feeling? Because if you can name like on that feeling wheel, I'm feeling sad. That's a location. That's a ping. And what you want is your partner to join you there. And then what's making you sad? Now that's a thought. I'm sad because it's been days since we had any meaningful interaction and I just miss you. Right. And then three would be the action, the request. What is it that I might imagine if you could say or do an actionable, really tangible action you could take that would lighten my feeling just a little bit? It would make me a little less sad or a little less afraid. And we we name all three. Our partner really has a recipe for how to love us. But most of us do not use, I'm using, I'm holding up three fingers in case people can't see this. Yeah. But imagine with me, right? Well, most of us don't share our first thing, what I'm feeling. We just offer a thought like, I don't want you to do that. I don't like that. That's a thought, okay? Without any feeling, it's implied but not stated. And we don't make an actionable request. So what we actually (laughs) do is giving our partner the middle finger. And guess what? People respond when they get the middle finger. They want to come back with another one. So what people often do is like this thought battle. Well, I think this, well, I think that. And it's disconnected. Whereas even if I disagree with your perspective about something, if I listen for, and what does your perspective about this make you feel? How do you feel Mm -hmm. with that Mm -hmm. thought or that experience? I cannot argue with how you feel. I can't say, if you say I'm afraid, I can't say, no, you're not. Now, people can try, but I really don't be any more than if you said, I'm just really hungry for, you know, a donut right now. I can't say, I could say, I'd rather you not eat a donut. I don't think it's healthy. Whatever I might say. But what I can't say is, no, that's not what you want right now. I, I know what you want. I'll tell you what you want. I can't yeah. do that, right? We wouldn't do that when it comes to foods that are no. drawing our attention. But yeah. somehow when I say, this is what I'm feeling right now, and if it's not happy, our partners want to run for the hills. <laughs> oh, don't feel that, whatever you do. And then we're, we're off to disconnect. Whereas if I just said, I understand, you know, that you're hurting because you have this nail in your head and I breathe and just that alone. And you go, 
It feels so good to have somebody I love tell me they understand what I'm feeling. Yeah. Then you yeah. can say, now, do you have any ideas about what to do with this nail? Yes, <laughs> yes. I really do. I have some thoughts. <laughs> You're all ears. You really are open. So true. So, oh my goodness, I could talk to you forever, Jonathan. I'm loving this conversation. <laughs> that was a lovely description of a, a very practical thing to you know take away from this is the the three fingers make sure you have all three and not just the middle one but yeah you know some therapists talk about creating a holding environment just creating a, a space in which it's okay to not be okay not to fear conflict really is a key piece here and actually learn how to do conflict a lot of us need to learn that you know, be it through, you know, couples therapy or looking resources. You've given some really great books and we'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. Learning how to do conflict will lead to have happily ever after. Happily ever after one moment at a time. Yes. Exactly. I really like that. Beautiful. Small, small things often. There you go. Well, guys, it was a delight to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It was a pleasure. Absolute delight. See you soon. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, you can email us at lifesdirtylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.